1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16, Principles for Marriage. Now concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she or he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do we know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do we know, husband? whether you will save your wife. That was a mouthful. That was. All right. Um, We're we're talking marriage tonight, and I, I think there's a great question for those living in Corinth, and I think there's a great question for those who live in a metro city like L.A., uh, especially one for like our, our modern cultural moment. And, and it's a really simple question is, uh, what good is marriage? What good is marriage? Uh, m- maybe, uh, maybe an addendum, uh, like an addendum would be like, what's the purpose of marriage? But what good is marriage? What good is marriage? And we want to get, I want to give you a little bit of a Christian vision for this, uh, but I'm only going to give you one idea, one idea for a Christian vision for marriage. Uh, and that comes from uh, chapter 7 that they read for us. It comes from chapter uh, 11. It comes from parts of Ephesians 5. Uh, I, um, it's, this is not going to be exhaustive. There is so much there. Um, I'm going to give you one big idea. And that one big idea is going to speak to those who are married and to those who are single. I think that covers everybody. Okay? I really do. Uh, and, and what it's going to do is this one idea is um, address the single and say, should I get married or how, how do I go about that? And uh, if you're married, then um, 
is there something there that fixes the bad parts of my marriage? And is there something that um, builds on the beautiful parts of my marriage? So this one big idea should kind of answer that. Um, now, a lot of you are not going to be, they're going to be like, there's so much more. I want to hear more. I want to hear more. Guess what? We can go deeper in our neighborhood groups. And in 2022, we're going to have a series just on marriage where we're going to unpack a lot of this. We're calling it a marriage with mileage. So if you've been married a little bit, stay tuned, 2022. All right, so for this one idea, which I haven't told you about, um, this is what I want to do first, is I want to cover some cold, hard facts from social science, okay? I just want to look at some empirical, observable data from social science about marriage. And then second is I want to look at our culture's views on marriage, Okay, that will be fair. I won't, I won't be unfair in any way. And then the third thing I want to do is I want to give you this Christian biblical vision for marriage um, with one big idea. So I want you to do is when, when I give you these ideas, I want you to actually let these, that one big idea I give you, I want you to have it duke it out with our culture's opinion. I want you to stand back, let them duke it out in your own head and mind. All right, let it wrestle and then let your heart go towards what seems attractive, okay? That's what I want you to do. All right, so let's, let's look at some cold, hard facts. Um, this first one, uh, this cold, hard facts from social science, from the scientists, um, everybody knows it, right? Um, one in two marriages end in divorce. But I have to include it to, you know, I just have to include it. You knew that already, not a surprise. Uh, number two, um, in 1970, of all births happen to a married couple, okay? Now, um, it is uh, less than 60% are um, married to, or uh, births happen to a married couple. All right, third thing, uh, third idea, I want you to just kind of let coast in your head here. 1960, about uh, 75% of all adults were married, got married, and were married, um, and now it is hovering at around 50%. So social scientists are just reporting the facts. Like, this is what we see. And this is what it was back then. This is what it is now. That's it. Just look at the data. Fourth little piece here is this. Is um, in 1960, um, cohabitation, just like living together, you know, before you got married. Um, it was uh, virtually statistically ne- negligible. It happened, but not reportable, barely, statistically. Um, so now, uh, about uh, half of adults will live with someone before they get married, if they get married at all. Okay, that's social science. So all we can say this, no judgments. All we're going to say this is uh, the social scientists look at from the 1960s and the 1970s, and they say, hey, marriage was one thing, and now today... We have seen significant shifts in marriage. That's all we want to say about the social science data. That's all we want to say. All right, now, what we want to do is go, because of those significant shifts, it's changed, okay? Our culture has different opinions about marriage. They looked at marriage a certain way back then, and now they have opinions and look at marriage a certain way now. So what are those? So, um, uh, this is, again, from social science data, is when I say us, I'm talking about American culture, okay? When I say us. Uh, most of us think that most marriages are unhappy. 
So most of us think that most marriages are unhappy or become unhappy, all right? Um, And it's logical, right? Because if one in two, half, end in marriage, the other half that don't end, we can't assume that they're all happy. So it's kind of a logical thing that we think that most marriages are unhappy. All right. Uh, the uh, The second thing that we have that an opinion about the social science data is this, is the key to marriage or good marriage, I'd rather say, is uh, compatibility. Like 60 years ago, um, maybe 80 years ago, we didn't really think about or talk about co- compatibility in marriage. Um, so if let's define compatible. Compatible is this, is um, I meet someone that I don't have to change too much. <laughs> and they don't want to change me too much. That's compatibility, all right? We didn't talk about that 60 years ago, but that's a a popular conception uh, from the social scientists. Third is this, is uh, uh, cohabitation, living together, is a necessary, really good test for the compatibility, okay? That's a good test for compatibility. Um, Intense, wonderful, sexy time is absolutely necessary to determine and assess Compatibility. Okay. Um, the fourth thing is this, is marriage is a problem. And it's kind of scary. And I have fear attached to it. This is a, this is a cultural opinion about marriage. Okay. All the surveys, all the studies bear this out uh, from the social scientists. So in a recent study asked of high schoolers, um, they just asked this simple question, is So, um, because there was such a significant shift, um, there has been a massive amount of social science research just done in the last 15 years. Because of that shift, we have tons of research. So, here it is. Uh, Did you know that those who live together before they get married have the highest chance of breaking up? Now, that's from social science. That's not from the preacher, trust me. Okay, um, most cohabitations don't lead to marriage. Okay, and the earlier in a relationship that sex is introduced, the higher chance of that relationship breaking up. Okay, now most young people, 25 and under, um, don't believe that. They don't believe that, and that's fair, right? Um, social and social scientists in the last 15 years are a little perplexed at what the young people believe and what is true about how relationships develop. And so they're like, what, what is the reason for that gap? If you're a scientist, you're like, I want to know why. They believe this, but we have different empirical data that bears something else out. So what is that? Um, so most marriages are unhappy. This is a young person's thought, one and two end. But what we don't know is this is the marriage, most marriages, if you got married before age 18, most of those relationships will end in divorce. If you wait until you're 25 and you just have a high school diploma or a college diploma, there's a very slim chance you'll divorce. A very slim chance. Um... 62% of 
all people in a marriage at least 15 years um, in, a, in a study where you could check um, happy, very happy, and unhappy, and very unhappy. If you were in a marriage um, at least 15 years, 62% check either happy or very happy. So longevity in a marriage bears a little bit more happiness. Um, this, I, I couldn't believe this one from this past week. Um, two-thirds of the people who checked unhappy or very unhappy, if they just waited five years, checked the box happy or very happy. That's an interesting stat. So, so this is what the data from the social scientists tell us. Is, did you know that married people have um, greater physical, mental health, um, wealth accrual, and this is a controlled for ethnicity, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, researchers are talking about this. They have this little phrase, marital social norms. Um, beautiful things that happen to you and a community because you stay in your marriage. Um, this is it, is your partner, your spouse can force you. They can force you into acts of self-discipline more than your friends, family, parents, peers, coworkers, you name it. Um, uh, let, let, me, let, me, let me give you an example. Um, it, as soon as you get married, your car insurance goes down. Now, let me just tell you this. Insurance companies are a lot of things, but they're not ideologues. They're not trying to make a point. They're just looking at the actuary tables. That's all they're looking at. <laughs> when you get married, um, you're less impulsive and you take more care. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Um, something happens when you get married, you become a better person. You become a better person. You save more, you show care, you're less impulsive. Um, so what people think about marriage, that, that cultural opinion is very different from these uh, marital social norms that happen just because you are married. The opinion is different from what happens. So our, our culture has some thoughts on marriage. They're pretty negative, uh, but those negative thoughts don't line up with the observable social science, the marital social norms. All right, um, there's this guy named John Witte, end with an E. He's at Emory University, and he said, you know, we used to have this classic definition of marriage, and the classic definition is marriage, a perpetual, so nonstop, contractual union um, enabling kids and community and the family unit to, for, for ongoing flourishing. That's the classic definition of marriage. And he said the modern definition of marriage is a terminal, so an, a relationship with an end, uh, a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of both parties. Now, so this is what I want you to get, is an older view of marriage encouraged you and me to squelch personal desires for the sake of someone else, a family, and a community, and a bigger goal. All right? That's a classic, an older definition of marriage. Um, 
And Witty asked this, what changed? It used to be this. It used to be that um, I would find meaning in my spouse and my family and my community and my nation maybe and, you know, maybe God. Something greater than me. I would find meaning in something bigger than me. And Witty points this. He said, I think it was because of the Enlightenment. And what he means this is, the, way, the Enlightenment said this, is the way that you're going to find meaning as an individual is t- for you to do exactly what you want to do to bring you fulfillment. And it means what? It means this. With that new definition, it means marriage is not a vehicle for character development and growth. What does it mean? It means that it's a selfish vehicle. It's not meant for a broader good. It's only, it's only exists for myself. So I, um, I was reading in the New York Times. Uh, there's this lady called uh, uh, Tara Parker Pope. She writes for the Times. And um, she actually captured this better than I could capture it. So I'm going to rip off her phrase. And she, and she just simply says this. Marriage used to be about us. But the modern marriage is about me. Do you see the shift? It used to be about something bigger than me, but now it's just about me. Um, The new approach to marriage means this. It means that uh, if you're single, you're trying to find a compatible soulmate. A compatible soulmate. And what it does is that puts actually a very crushing burden on an individual. It puts a crushing burden on marriage that it was never designed designed to fulfill. Um, I was at a dinner party, and so uh, there was a, it was kind of a one table conversation, and most of the couples um, were like late forties, early fifties, and then there was one couple that was a newlywed couple. I don't know, like three years, two three years, and so someone tossed out a subject to talk about. You know, and it was, um, hey, I know this sounds crazy, but you know that fiddler on the roof idea? Like, do you think that if your parents or your friends pick someone for you to marry, do you think it would work out? <laughs> All right, this is funny. Um, the 50-year-olds, the, the, the middle-aged people, they, they thought about it and were throwing it around, and they said, uh, yeah, we could probably make it work. <laughs> And the newlywed couple was horrified, horrified that there'd be no way that could possibly work. Um, what do we? What do we say? What am I saying, Tim? What are you saying? Um, see, this is a compatible soulmate. I, if you find this person, you have found them at their peak because they don't need to be changed. They don't need to be changed. Um, think of the crushing expectations. Uh, you've got to find people, a, a person who has already accomplished it all in all categories. Right? They, they don't need maintenance. They're not needy for crying out loud. Right? They, like, they just fit you. Um, and they should make your life really interesting 
and en- enhance you in every category. Um, and uh, it, it, they just don't need any work. They have it together. And uh, it, you find this person who thinks for sure you don't need any work. Like you're perfect. You don't have to change. You don't have to adapt or adjust. Um, men are the w- worst at this. Uh, um, I want to find a woman who doesn't want to change me. Oh, oh, and P.S. Um, we have to have sexual chemistry, and it has to stay that way forever. <laughs> so this is what happens in our compatibility search. We're looking for a unicorn that doesn't exist. Do you know? Do you feel the pressure? If you're single, do you feel the pressure that we're putting on compatibility? Um, Stanley Hauerwas, he's at Duke University. He writes this. He says, the assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. (laughs) We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while. And he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we entered it. Um, Think about this. You see someone who is great and they're compatible. They don't want to change you and you don't want to change them. Okay? Um, But this is it, is you're looking at a person that's not married to you. (laughs) And then (laughs) once they marry you, they're a different person. We never marry the person who will never change. So I think this, I think compatibility is doomed because it crushes a person and it crushes what marriage was designed for. It crush, it's crushing. So let me give you this one idea. This is it. Very, very brief. Here's the big Christian vision for marriage. This one big idea. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a spot where it talks about marriage, and then there is a really key verse that is like the, the big star in this section, and then there's a phrase that is the money phrase of the star of this big section of marriage. And here it is, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself, gave himself gave himself up for her. So Paul uses this idea. If you, When we had our sexual ethics sermon um, in the city, Paul uses this idea to correct horrible practices for searching for love outside your, your jam, your, your marriage. And what did he say? He said, oh, this is the corrective, is you've got to remember you're not your own. You're not your own. You belong to God. You're not your own. There's that idea, I'm going to give myself up. You're not your own. Um, he uses the same idea in chapter 7. And he says this, husbands, give yourselves to your wife. Right? Give yourselves, she, she is over you. Uh, wives, give yourself to your husband. He's over you. Like there's this mutual giving up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up. I'm not my own. I'm going to give it away. Um, And it sounds like this. It sounds like what we hear Jesus say elsewhere. He who loses his life will find it. 
Now that sounds really nice, but let me just tell you this, is in a marriage, and you guys know this, if you're in a marriage and you're giving yourself away daily nonstop, it will suck you dry and you will be shriveled, angry, bitter, and say, where is mine? No one can do this. No one. You think I can? You think I'm cheery and nice to my wife 24-7? No, Tim, we don't. Just say it. Um, uh, Kathy Keller puts it this way. Um, She says, uh, uh, a lot of us suffer from compassion fatigue. And she has this image where, um, uh, let's let's say you have a big heart, the heart of gold. All right, you just have a heart of gold. And um, you're walking down the street and you see um, someone playing their guitar, you know, the busker, open case, and you're like, that is good. Bud, you go get it. And then you're walking along and you're joyful because you have this, you have the, the heart of gold, right? And you're going along and there's a, a guy and he goes, hey, could you spare a few bucks? And you're like, of course I could because like I've got a heart of gold and yes, I want to do this and you keep on going and soon enough, soon enough, what are you going to do? You're just going to run out. You have compassion fatigue. Like no one can keep this up. You can never just give yourself away all the time and not pay for it without what? Stopping at an ATM somewhere and saying, yeah, I need to get something. And this is what we're talking about. If I'm asking us to say, you can give it, you can give yourself up for your spouse and it's going to lead you to development and growth and betterment and fruition and flourishing. But you and I both want to say this, like, where is the ATM? Where is the ATM? You tell me that right now because I'm not, I can't do that. I can't do that every week. Where's the ATM? And let me just tell you this. Your ATM is not your spouse. Tim, could you rewind and say, where am I going to get this? Um, let, me, let me just say this to you. The most filling the most developing, the most growth engendering love you will be able to ever find will be found in the one who what? Gave himself up for you. And this is hilarious. He didn't do it because he found you compatible. do it because um, you were helping him achieve his wildest dreams. He didn't do it because he thought, hey, I bet you are going to enhance me somehow. I mean, how do you do that to a perfection? I don't know. He didn't do it because you were going to give him some hot, sensational experience. This is powerful. He just did it for you. He just did it for you. Um, That kind of love enables me to drop the act. Drop the garbage. Drop the facade. Drop my crushing expectations that I have on my poor wife and my own dreams. She's not that poor. (laughs) 
because we have crushing expectations on our mates and ourselves to be everything and P.S. a sex machine. But we're not getting our love from there. We're not getting our love from there. We're not going to wring it and squeeze it out of a person, but we're going to get it from him. Uh, And finally, we're able to let our spouses be the person that God is shaping them to become. And it's so much better than even their dreams or our dreams for them. And the funny thing is, we find our truest selves there too. Let's pray into that. Jesus, um, you know I want to be a better husband. You know I want to love well. You know I want to grow. You know I want to develop. You know I want to, I long for things. And I find that in you. I find that in you first and I find it in giving myself up. Help, help me feed on your kind of love so that I'm a good dad and I'm a good husband and I'm a good friend. You got to help me with that. So help my friends too. In Jesus' name, amen.